Hello, listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in the show notes, including our toll-free number, which is 1-855-625-8610. Please check out Life on Record, a gift of record messages for any special occasion to a loved one. See our show notes for details. This is Ron Michael, president of the NLJSP, the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the member comes first. Enjoy this podcast. The dust was so thick that workers sometimes could see barely 10 feet in the train headlights. Reads one account. Instead of waiting 30 minutes after blasting as required by state law, workers were herded back into the tunnel immediately, often beaten by foremen with pick handles. They were warned never to speak of the company's authoritarian methods, but employees knew of an unmarked mass grave in the nearby town of Somerville, where the bodies of the dead were interned. Their only gravestones, cornstalks, waving in the wind, their shrouds, overalls in which they died. According to a labor newspaper, I don't know what's wrong, but I'm going to die, one young tunnel worker confided to his mother. I think it's from my work. I want you to have me cut open. If you can get anything from the company, go ahead. The situation at Hawk's Nest went unnoticed for the same reasons government has always been challenged to actively monitor workplace health and safety, the difficulty of gaining access to job sites for inspections, and the perennial lack of regulatory law backed by sufficient funding and manpower. The Walsh-Healy Act of 1936 gave Washington the right to establish safety rules for companies that had contracts worth more than $10,000 with the federal government. But fewer than 5% of the 75,000 workplaces eligible under Walsh-Healy were ever examined. Inspections were procedurally involved and required a committed budget, and there were simply too many risks, poisonous explosives, industrial compounds, faulty machinery for any single agency to fully catalog and investigate them. The president of Reinhardt and Dennis Union Carbide's chief contractor dismissed the West Virginia silicosis allegations as gross misrepresentation and falsehood, but Congress would later determine that as many as 476 men had died and another 1,500 were severely stricken by silicosis at the Ganley Bridge Tunnel. It also found that while tunnel inspectors were issued masks before entering the site, none had been given to the workers. A lawsuit against Reinhardt and Dennis resulted in payments of between $80 and $250 for blacks and $250 and $1,000 for whites, stricken with the disease. Although many long-term sufferers denied compensation because West Virginia's statute of limitations had expired. In the wake of the Willie Bridge hearings of 1936, Secretary Perkins suggested that other states act at once to investigate and produce legislation to address silicosis. main result of her pleadings proved to be the creation by industry of a pseudo-scientific front group, the Industrial Health Foundation designed to use expert medical testimony and advice 
to fend off claims of injury and inhibit reform. In 1952, Herbert Humphrey introduced a bill in Congress for the setting of national work safety standards and the provision of federal workplace inspections, legislation that received the backing of the CIO. The press was generally supportive, one article noting that in the entire United States there were only 1,600 state workplace inspectors, half of the number of fish and game wardens. But the Humphrey Initiative was curtailed by a resistant AFL which still favored a state-based approach. Business lobbyists revealingly explained they opposed a federal solution because the risks involved in the nation's industries were so numerous as many as 10,000 inspectors would be needed to investigate them. The concept of a federal regulatory mechanism received a boost at the end of the decade when an inquiry into previously mandated safety standards for longshoremen and harbor workers Occupations with unusually high levels of workplace injury found that industry compliance had brought a sharp decrease in injuries. In 1965, the Public Health Services, PHS, reported to the Surgeon General that a new chemical entered the workplace every 20 minutes, that some of these substances were carcinogenic, and recommended that PHS establish a program to reduce occupational health dangers. Organized labor increasingly taking an interest in the possibility of a sweeping federal role and impressed by PHS's claims urged the Surgeon General to pursue the matter. In March 1967, the Washington Post reported that as many as 100 uranium miners had died of lung cancer in recent years and that as many as 1,000 more such deaths might be expected. Unions across the nation began stepping up their efforts on workplace health. In the late 1960s, Tony Mizuchi of the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers started visiting workplaces in the company of a physician to discuss with workers the health risks of industrial toxins that had the potential to harm them and their families. He also reminded industrial workers of their larger connection to the environment in that most pollutants found their originated in factories. Let's face it, he said, we are responsible. We make them. When you were putting into the water, which we ultimately have to drink and depend upon for life, and what we introduce into the air, you have a very frightening picture. In January 1968, President Johnson called it shameful that 14,000 American workers were killed on the job each year and more than 2 million injured or sickened told Congress that the time had come to produce comprehensive federal workplace safety legislation. Most major unions voiced support for the bill, as did Ralph Nader, while industry spokesmen complained that such measures would hand excessive regulatory powers to the federal government. The bill the president had encouraged and organized labor had backed did not make it out of committee. After President Nixon took office in January 1969, Mizuchi helped start a greater lobbying effort by the steelworkers, ACAW, and other unions. The new round of congressional hearings focused on a more conservative bill, 
suggestive of a greater advisory and less regulatory role for the government. A key point of disagreement was the extent to which the Labor Department would control the program. After several versions of the bill had been debated and amendments considered, it was agreed that the Labor Department would retain the important role of establishing standards and inspections, and a separate commission would hear violations and complaints and levy fines. Backed solidly by OCAW, the UAW, the Steelworkers, and the AFL-CIO, the Occupational Safety and Health Act was signed into law by President Nixon in late December of 1970. Held as a safety bill of rights, it extended federal protection for the first time to 56 million U.S. private sector workers. The first several years of OSHA governance were far from encouraging, underfinanced, and overwhelmed by the task it faced. By mid-1971, only 9,300 out of 4 million workplaces had been inspected. Of these, only 20% were found to be violation-free, suggesting that many violations awaited discovery and enforcement. Soon after, during a nine-month period in 1971 through 1972, OSHA was able to inspect 20,688 plants, 77% which were found to be in compliance. Things moved slowly on the standard setting and as well. Of the 15,000 hazardous chemicals known to be used in the United States industry, by August 1972, OSHA had set standards for only 500, a serious shortfall, as OSHA, since opening for business, had been inundated by worker complaints and questions from across the country about routinely handled chemical compounds. Karen Silkwood, 28 years old, in 1974, and a mother of three, had started work at the Kerr-McGee Nuclear Corporation two years earlier. The plant was located in the town of Crescent, not far from Oklahoma City, and belonged to Kerr-McGee's constellation of energy interests in oil, coal, uranium, timber, and chemicals. Robert S. Kerr, a governor and U.S. senator known for his labor, his larger-than-life personality as the big boom from Oklahoma, had helped found the company in 1929. Dean A. McGee, a famously gifted explorer of valuable oil sites, joined in 1938. She was paid $3.45 an hour, a slightly higher wage than that received by her co-workers. The facility in Crescent manufactured plutonium pellets that were assembled into eight-foot-long fuel rods to be used in an experimental fast-breeder reactor being built for the AEC near Richland, Washington. Plutonium, a product of neutron bombardment, uranium made its first appearance in 1945. When it was used in the atomic bomb dropped by the United States on Nagasaki, Japan, Silkwood's job was to perform quality control tests on the pellets, as well as the finished rods to make sure the welds were perfect. In the fall of 1972, shortly after she came to Kerr-McGee, Karen joined OCAW Local 5-283 in a strike for higher wages. Of the original 100 OCAW strikers who struck Kerr-McGee, only 20, including Silkwood, withstood the urge to return without a contract. 
The firm eventually did agree to a new pact with the workers, bringing her back to work, but she had become politicized by her experience on the picket line. In the spring of 1974, the pace of work at the plant was stepped up. Schedules were lengthened, and most disturbing to Karen, the already mediocre plant radiation safety measures were relaxed. After working her 12-hour night shift at the plant, she often found it hard to sleep, so a physician prescribed for her a new muscle relaxant known as Quaalude, upon which she soon grew reliant. On July 31, 1974, Silkwood was mildly contaminated in a work incident. It did not appear to seriously threaten her health, but when a co-worker was also contaminated a short time later, she expressed her concern about lack safety precautions to the company. Later that summer, Karen's local tapped her to be one of three employees on OCAW bargaining committee. Kerr McGee had called for a National Labor Review Board monitored election for October 16th to challenge whether OCAW had enough support at the Crescent site to continue to represent its workers, an effort known as decertification. Winning the election, maintaining the union's NLRB certification as the designated bargaining representatives for Kerr McGee employees was crucial to Silkwood and her cohorts as a new contract was due to be negotiated later that fall, and for the first time, safety measures were to be a key issue. One of her colleagues, Jack Tice, had written to OCAW headquarters in Washington to complain that safety practices were not all they should be at the plant, and Union Vice President Elwood Swisher wrote back advising Tice to closely monitor the methods in question and then come to Washington to report. Karen began taking meticulous notes of safety violations she observed. To Jack Tice, Karen Silkwood, and Jerry Brewer, the three members of the bargaining unit, it seemed likely the locals' chances would be improved if their efforts on plant safety could be shown to bear fruit. On September 26, the three flew to Washington in secret to meet with OCAW officials. Tony Mizuchi, the former New York chemical worker who had led OCAW's lobbying effort in the lead-up to OSHA and now headed the union's legislative office, and Steve Woodka, the union's legislative assistant, as the three visitors recounted the safety abuses at Kermakee, when Mizuki explained that plutonium was one of the most highly carcinogenic substances known to mankind, Silkwood and her cohorts were shocked. No one at Kermakee had ever warned workers that the material they handled each day could cause cancer. During a break, Silkwood confided to Mizuchi that Kermakee was not simply negligent in its safety efforts, but that she believed workers occasionally cheated at quality control, passing along plutonium rods that were not safe. They instructed Silkwood to go back to the plant to find out who was falsifying the records, who was ordering it, and to document everything in specific detail. If she could get evidence of her claims, he promised he would get David Burnham, a reporter he knew at the New York Times, to look into the story. Before the visitors returned to Oklahoma, Mizuchi also suggested 
that OCAW arranged for scientists to come to the Crescent plant to inform the workers about the dangers of plutonium. Not only was this the right thing to do, he said, it would enhance the union stature with the workers as the decertification election neared. On October 16th, the workers voted 80 to 61 to retain OCAW as their bargaining agent. At work, Silkwood experienced three episodes of contamination and began suffering other health and emotional problems. She'd also grown concerned, she told close friends, that someone was after her, trying to hurt her, and they had come into her home and put plutonium there. A Kerr McGee team sent to her home found extremely high radiation readings, especially on a bologna sandwich in her refrigerator. A fecal test showed that Silkwood had ingested plutonium, and it also appeared that someone had placed plutonium in her urine sample kit at work. An AEC inquiry that followed Kermit Key's own investigation confirmed that Silkwood had ingested plutonium and that her urine samples had been tampered with after they'd been excreted. Her roommate, Sherry Ellis, was found to have been contaminated likely by plutonium in their apartment. Kermit Gee, disavowing knowledge of any clandestine effort to smear Silkwood's reputation or contaminate her, suggested that she had, for some reason, carried plutonium out of the plant and taken it home. Karen, in long-distance phone calls to OCAW Steve Woodco, with whom she'd had a casual affair while in Washington, admitted being frightened, but she had managed to gather information on Kermit Gee's falsifying of quality control measures. He arranged to come to Oklahoma City on November 13th, bringing along reporter David Burnham to meet her and see the evidence. That night, the two men were waiting several miles away at a motel north of the city for Silkwood, who was to come there directly after attending an OCAW local meeting at a cafe in downtown Crescent. Silkwood never arrived. Driving alone on Highway 74 south toward the city, her car veered off the road, crossed the medium, and struck a culvert on the opposite shoulder. She was killed instantly. Because there were no skid marks to suggest she tried to break, police deduced that Silkwood had fallen asleep at the wheel. This conclusion sounded unlikely to those who knew Karen, and particularly to Woodco, who doubted she would doze off given the importance of her meeting with Burnham and the risk she was taking. It simply seemed out of character. Critically, the manila folder stuffed with documents Karen intended to give the reporter and that others had seen her holding at the OCAW meeting at the restaurant was missing from the crash and was never found. Silkwood was correct that Kerr McGee had failed to provide workers with adequate information about the risk of plutonium-related illnesses and right to be alarmed by the corner cutting she perceived in quality and safety control. Some of her claims were later substantiated, but not all were as serious as she had believed. Whatever the circumstances of her death, she was a martyr to the principle that workers have a right to be fully informed about dangers in their place of work, and that employers have a moral duty to protect them. As her mother suggested months after laying her daughter to rest, we never did appreciate Karen as much as we should have. Look what she did. She gave her life to save others. That's the end of this one. And our next episode is going to be a series on organized crime and its involvement in the labor movement. I think you'll find it very interesting. Thank you. Thank you.
Good evening. This is James Napolitano, the International Vice President of the National League of Justice Security Professionals, where members come first. And to wrap this one up, I'd like to thank our sponsor, the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. (laughs) 